Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Tim Urban. He's the author and founder at Wait But Why, an amazing blog. Tim converts complex science, technology, and human relationship topics into very digestible and entertaining articles on his blog, which has over half a million subscribers. Tim Urban, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you, Aaron. Good to be here. Uh, excited. I'm really excited to dive in. I'm a huge fan of yours, big avid reader of your blog. I want to start with like some things around life extension, life expectancy. We know that life expectancy is kind of improving across all age groups, but let's say humans on average live on until 120 or 150. Like, how do you think that's going to change society? Yeah, really hope that happens. Really I, I hope that happens, like yeah. There's such an instinct, first of all, for people to be like, no, that's bad. We don't want that. Uh, I don't know why people have that instinct, but when people were living to 60 and 70, not that long ago, I, that probably felt right. I mean, whatever your life expectancy is, that suddenly seems like we would never want to have something shorter than that. So yeah. I imagine that would continue. I always like to think about, this is a more extreme example, but if we all live to a thousand, I feel like you, you would meet someone who's 90 and you'd be like, oh, well, they're a baby. They're, they're yeah. a kid. Yeah. You know, they're a kid, of course. So you would forgive all this stuff for anyone who's under 100. You'd be like, well, yeah, they're in their first century. Like, of course, they're being tribal. Of course, their ego is like out of control and like, you know, and they're, they're selfish. And, and so <laughs> I, 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 when, you, when you had that thought experiment, it, 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 A, makes you more, I think, it humbles you out because we're all yeah. a kid in that world. And it also, I think, helps you build compassion for others because uh, uh, you're like, okay, yeah, everyone is trying their best. But when I think about if we look to 120 or 150, now, uh, of course, no one wants the same exact quality of life we have now, but just extended so that people who are 150 have been living 50 years in, the, in a wheelchair, you know, maybe not in their right mind, like just being kind of extended. No one wants that. Right. So right. the idea would be that if you're living to 150, well, you know, 120 is the new 80 and yep. 100 is the new 50. You know, that I think is amazing. And I think we can get some of this. That like, would be so awesome. And I think it'll give us more time to grow up. It'll allow wisdom to accumulate a little more. I feel like, you know, we build up wisdom and then we start atrophying and then we we die, you know, and it's like, we're, I feel like to have a little bit more time to work on our projects, to get good at things, to relax a little about the timeline, because we're on a tight schedule, all of us. And I think it would be good for a lot of reasons. I'm sure there'd be some negatives. One negative I could see, I'd be interested in your thoughts, is obviously there's all these accruing advantages that happen with people. And so you could, we're already in a scenario where there's like the winners win bigger today than maybe they did in the past. You could see a scenario where they're just like accrue advantage, like imagine Warren Buffett at 150 or imagine Rupert Murdoch at 150 or something like that. It's just like, they just keep accruing all the way through and makes it harder for like new entrants to come in. Yeah. I think you could see, you could actually apply that in a couple of ways. You could say resources wise, which is what you're saying, but also one of the ways that science advances or ideas advance is not always people coming around and changing their mind when they're wrong. It's people dying and for science advances one funeral at a time yeah, but, yeah yeah it's eventually you know the stubborn people they pass away and you have a new generation that is able to see stuff with fresh eyes so i think you could say that some kind of things we don't like about about life could be kind of exacerbated by this right you could have uh, I, I, th I think i guess a part of what i think at least on the second part which is you know the um stubbornness you know people in power having the one way right now we can kind of 
free ourselves from the people in power as they eventually get old and die. Yes. Right. So that's going to yep. be long, whether it's resources or ideas. And yeah, I think, I think that would be maybe a negative, but I think on the other hand, I hope that a society that is advanced enough to do that also is growing up in other ways. And if we're advanced enough to do that, hopefully it's resources in general. I always fantasize about a future where resources just aren't that big a deal because everyone has plenty. Yeah. Where it's like, sure, some people want to get like crazy rich. That's like a, a weird hobby of some people, but it's like not at all important and everyone's fine. In which case it's like just less important resources in the way that right now it's not like running water in the U.S. is like this huge topic because everyone has as much as they need, basically, in the U.S. at least. And once you have it, then it stops being a topic. So I kind of hope for that in the big picture, like that this instinct to go and get super rich is looked at like a hoarder, like kind of like a silly remnant of the past when resources were scarce and like they're still stuck in that mindset and that it's just not even something most people are thinking that hard about. It's like not driving them. So that would be my hope at least. Yeah, I mean, you could see a world where the differentiating goods that you have when you're super rich is like the Picasso painting or something on your wall, which costs $200 million. And then like the average person has the exact same painting, but they have like a perfect replica print that costs $20, right? Right. And then it's like, okay, well, that's just, it's not really your life is any different. You still get to enjoy this beautiful thing that's out there. And uh, just like the the super wealthy person gets to say, well, I have the real one or, you know, and they get to brag to their friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. like, it's like they have cool things. You can yeah. go over to a super rich person's house and be like, oh, wow, like you have such cool things. But it's not like, oh, uh, if only I could live the way you live. And like, if only all these people could afford to eat. Yeah. Was, they have the gold plated plate instead of a normal plate. Exactly. Know, and they'll be like, oh, they're, they're randomly really rich. It's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's like they're, they're, one of their hobbies is like hoarding resources. Like, okay, <laughs> cool. Why not? You know? Now, you also wrote this piece on cryonics, which I love essentially, which is like freezing your body before you die. Like walk us through the process of this and what's your conclusion of like, whether you decide to do it, whether you're convincing your friends and your family to do it, et cetera. Uh, yeah. It's a fascinating topic because I mean, to understand cryonics, you first have to understand the definition of death, which seems obvious to us. It's like you're alive or you're dead and that's yeah. it. But it's 50 years ago, if someone collapsed on the street and their heart stopped, wasn't beating and they weren't breathing, they were dead. That was a dead person. There was nothing that anyone would do to save them. It was just, you know, maybe maybe 1950 we're talking about. And the hospital, doesn't matter if they're in the hospital or on the street, that's it. They're gone, right? Today, we don't call that person dead. We have all of this, we have defibrillators and all this stuff in the hospital that can bring that person back and can get that person and can um, help them survive. So we actually call that clinical death, which is a definition where if you want if, you, if you're terminally ill and you you say, I, I, I don't want to be brought back in that situation, then you can legally allow that person to die, but it's a choice and mm -hmm. the, and it, when we can bring that person back, right? But on the other hand, today, when someone has lost blood to their brain for five full minutes, I think that's the definition or a certain amount of time, we call that brain death. That's legal death. And what we mean by that is that there is no bringing that person back, no matter what. That person is gone. Even if we could get their blood going again, doing so would bring so much damage to the brain that they would never be conscious again. So are they dead? No, they're dead in 2022. They're right. dead. Because we don't technology. have the technology to get them. Yes. Back. Yeah, absolutely. A future hospital would be able to save them. So the, the only real definition of actual full death is that you're in a state where no amount of future technology, the no advanced future could save you. 
And really the only way you can, it's like you have to securely erase the hard drive in a way that no crazy advanced future species could recover the hard drive that is you and your brain. And that's basically when the atoms in your brain have deteriorated to such a a massive extent that there's no way to figure out what configuration they used to be in, right? So this is actually how how a person is fully dead, right? That's called info death, right? Where there's, there's truly no way to... Cryonics is the... Just say you were in a hospital today. You know, again, you passed out and we didn't know what was happening. We thought you were going to die. And the hospital was like, yeah, we have nothing to do to save Orin. But across the city, there's a hospital that has a machine that can save him. Obviously, everyone would say, rush into the hospital, right? Yeah. Across the, get the ambulance and send it to that hospital. Cryonics is basically the science of sending people to a hospital in the future that can save them. That's the goal. Yep. Right. So people say it's freezing you, which is, you know, that's what it seems like. It's not actually freezing. If you freeze someone there, you know, water expands when it's frozen. And so it'll actually get bigger and explode your cells and you'll die. So you can't freeze a person. You can vitrify them, which is when you pump antifreeze into their bloodstream, some form of antifreeze, and then you cool them way beyond freezing temperature. To usually, I think it's like 195, negative 195 degrees and uh, in liquid nitrogen, right? Which can get really cold, but you pump some antifreeze. And so instead of actually the ice happening, what, what happens is it stays in a liquid state. It just becomes so viscous, it can't move anymore. So you pause the body or mm-hmm. the, and most importantly, the brain exactly how it was. So you just, all the atoms in your brain are just- And how long does that process take to just like get someone and pump antifreeze and like put them in a vat or whatever? <laughs> I think they can do it in like a couple hours less. And, and, okay. and it's a risk for time because basically if you die, every minute counts. You know, yeah. Every every hour that goes by, your brain is in, is less and less in the exact state that it was when you were alive, right? It's deteriorating, yep. it's changing. And we don't want that. Now, maybe if you're if you're out for a week and they get you on into the vitrification chamber, maybe you can be saved by some future civilization, but way in the future, right, maybe right. now. It could be every hour, could be another like 10 exactly. years in the future. Or exactly, like exactly. Yeah. It maybe may every hour is a century in the future. It's hard yeah. to know. So the goal is what you do when you sign up is you have the, the cryonics, ideally you're in a, a hospital that is friendly with cryonics. Like there's a, there's a handful yeah. of them. And, and if you're terminally ill, then, then you, go right, you just go right there. Yeah, I yeah. mean, they can be there and, yeah. and you are, the second you are gone, yeah, they will. They will make sure to, to start the process. And they basically it's pausing a human. And it's um right now, the other options are, you know, burial or cremation, which is zero percent chance that the future is going to revive you. This is some percentage. Now, maybe that's one percent or five percent or ten. Maybe someone optimistic might say 50. I don't know the percentage. Yeah. And usually the Cryonix companies, I, I find them to be pretty honest. They're very open about how we don't know if this will work or not. But we know is it's tossing your brain to the future and saying, see what you can do, future. Like I, I'm reading the culture series right now, the, the, the Ian Banks novels. I'm like six books in and I'm obsessed with it. But um, I want to live in that world. They live in this incredible utopic future civilization. And I want to like, yeah, like a, a super advanced species definitely could take like an old vitrified person from 200 years ago and be like, yeah, yeah, we're going to like restore them, give them a new fancy body. And Let's walk through the bet like, there's a couple of questions like, A, should an individual, if they have spare income, sign up for this cryonics thing? And it's like a yearly fee, right? Yep. And then this question is also just when, like, does it make sense when you're five years old to do it? Or does it make sense when you feel like you're closer to death? 
Um, you may already know you have a chronic disease or something like that. And so have you kind of made like thought about like the calculus there? Well, I mean, a few questions were answered. You know, if, if things were a little one notch more certain where it was like this almost definitely will preserve you in a way that the future will be able to bring you back. Other people are doing it. It's like a common thing to do. Yeah. And there's no potential negative, which I'll talk about in a second. And the more people do it, the more likely is these companies will survive too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And the more likely there'll be a huge industry working on reviving people, right? right. It, it'll yeah. actually be a reason. It'll be something that like becomes- Yeah, a families party. will be funding it. And yeah, stuff, and, there'll yeah. Be, and there'll be programs for when you get revived to help you right. reintegrate into the yeah, new world. Totally. To, to help you get into a new fresh grown body or a robot body or a restored body. Right, just like learn about the new society. Yeah, it's like, be this uh, whole industry yeah. builds around it. So if, if, and if, right, if we have those things, then I say it's insane not to do it. It's like not putting your seatbelt on times a thousand. To not right. Assuming it's you like, have a spare income to do it, right? Yes. Yeah, but they, they don't make it. It's it's about a cup of coffee a day. I mean, the way I, and, and, and you know, it's like, oh, what if it's a scam? I'm like, fine, it's, it's worth it. Like for me, it's worth a cup of coffee a day. If nothing else to literally have hope. Yeah. To have hope that, that a religious person that I'm not gets to have, that gets to say, Ooh, when I die, when we're going to wake up in heaven, what's going to happen? And, and, and a cryonics patient now can, they even if they're feeling it's only 1% chance, well, you're saying there's a chance type thing where you can like be on your deathbed and wonder, am I going to blink? I won't feel the passage of time. Am I going to blink and wake up in 2250 in this awesome new world or not? And so it's like a cup of coffee a day. Usually you set up for some like life insurance plan, cheaper the, the younger you are, which is what actually pays for it. So you don't have to like put down, like they're not going to go be able to collect from you after you die, right? And right. no one wants to put up... So you just do a life insurance plan. You get a life insurance plan that, that pays out to this company. And it's the whole thing, the fee in that adds up to like, I don't know, a cup of coffee a day or something. So it's not nothing. And yes, like I acknowledge that there you might definitely might be paying for absolutely nothing. But to me, it's like, think about all the things you spend a cup of coffee a day on that are less important than like giving yourself the chance to live in 200 years. Now, you mentioned there is a downside. What's the downside that maybe I wouldn't have been thinking about? So I've... <laughs> Again, I read a bunch of sci-fi and I've watched a bunch of Black Mirror. And if you died the normal way and you get buried, you know, you have a 0% chance of waking up in 2250 in this utopia. You also have a 0% chance of waking up in the hands of some sick fuck who wants to torture you or something, right? Mm -hmm. you know, you're officially giving yourself a non-zero chance of something also really, really bad. I would say the chances of the good outcome are hundreds of times better than the chances of the bad outcome. But we don't know what the future world is going to be like. We're picturing the U.S. with its laws and its culture and its values. You might not want to be come back in this new world. Yeah. Well, what if some yeah. future Hitler has won a war and yeah. now the U.S. is something land and we don't, you know, and, and, and it is they find all these cryonics patients and they want to experiment with putting human consciousness through a million years of torture to see what it does. I mean, again, this is a horror story, right? right. It's almost definitely not for a hundred reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that we actually talk to people who run these companies and they say that they have contingencies where I can say, if the country looks like it's going to fall to something else, I want to be unplugged basically, mm. right? If it looks unstable, if it looks like it's, you know, if there's a warning sign, I, I want to be unplugged. So you, they have this, right? People have thought Interesting. about this, but it's something to think about. That's yeah. why when you ask, am I encouraging people? If I thought there was no chance of the bad outcome and, and even a decent chance of a good outcome, I would be the biggest evangelist. I would be walking with my friends to say, you're signing up for this. Like, you know, I mean, you know, and like, I would be saying, come on, because because I'd be thinking we could be all together in 2300 in robot bodies around as long as we want. We can bow out when we want now. We're not, you know, you don't just stuck to this mammal body. 
but I don't want to do that. I don't, you know, when, when we have the fact that it could turn out well or badly, I don't want to, I, I don't want, I don't want to force anyone in anything. I, it's a really personal choice. It's a risk, frankly, yeah. but you could also say that if, if there was a good chance of living as long as you wanted in an amazing future, it's a risk not to as well, right? If, if you, cool. it's giving yourself a 0% chance of that if you don't. So it's, it's a tough one. Now you've popularized this idea that we have 4,000 weeks of life. Maybe if we live to 100, 5,000 weeks, what are some good ways to think about this like limited time that we have? Yeah, it is quite limited right now. And I think that it doesn't, even though it, it's not a great feeling, humans have a, um, we have like a mechanism in our brain that makes us feel like we have endless time, most of us at least, like in some way, like when we think about a week, it's just like one of my, you know, hundreds of thousands of weeks or thousands of, <laughs> but it's not, it's not, you know, if you think about, you know, from here till 80 from wherever you are you know yeah. it is a very finite number of weeks that you right if you're of, already if you're already 40 you only have two thousand you only have like yeah 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 so, we're talking yeah. two thousand weeks i mean two thousand i always picture it's a little um you know jelly bean two thousand jelly beans is a little jar. i mean it's like each week you take one of those out and that that's what you got left these are precious right this yeah. is like more precious than diamonds these are the most precious gemstones of your that you could ever have right and so don't waste a week basically i, I think of it as first of all like each week is, if you just start out a week and think this is a precious this week, yep. right? That is a good mindset to be. And I think it's, you're, you're just less likely to regret wasting time down the road. I also think that it's good to think about, um, I drew this graph once, which is kind of a tree of possibilities of life paths, right? And we think about our past a lot. We think, okay, I'm on this life path, but if I had done that thing instead, I could be in a totally different life path. If I had made this decision, I could be in a totally different. If I hadn't run into this person that day, I'd be in a totally different life path, right? So we think a lot about these. Yeah, I love that movie, Sliding Doors. It's just, uh, that's one of my favorite movies. I've never seen it. Oh, you need to watch it. It's so good. All right. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I just think we, we, we were built to dwell a lot on the roads not taken, right? We all do it. We think about it. Whether we're happy, we didn't take them or sad, but we think about them. And then I think we don't turn around and apply that to the future. Because the fact is, we think, well, now I'm on this life path. And that's right. what happened. Right? <laughs> right, but, right. but in 20 years, wherever you are, is because of a bunch of decisions that are yet to be made. There are a full branching tree in your future as well. And you're in control of that one. The past one, you can't. But there's like this huge tree of possibilities for your future that could lead in so many different ways. And you're not on a life path. You're on one of many, many, many future life paths. And it matters. Your decisions today matter. And that your regrets 20 years from now will almost definitely be about stuff that hasn't happened yet. You have the power to do something about them now. So I like to do these kinds of thought experiments that help snap me into a, I think, like a, like a wiser mindset, if I can try to do that. Oh, I love that. All right. Now, there's a couple of things on AI. So there's this kind of maybe debate on one side. There's the Ray Kurzweil. We're, we're accelerating toward AGI. We're accelerating toward progress. On the other hand, there's like Peter Thiel, where he says maybe the rate of progress is slowing. Moore's Law is slowing down. You wrote the super influential article in 2015 about AI, like seven years later. Where do you see the progress and how good is your prediction stacking up? Yeah, honestly, so I, I have a plan in the next couple of years to do a big second AI article because when I wrote that article, it was a pretty new topic for most people. Yeah. And it was like, we had a few experts that were talking about it and I tried to sum up what they were saying and it was really speculative. And today that's not true. I mean, there's there's been so much progress, so much thinking about it, so many competing philosophies. And I can't say that I... 
I, I need to write about it in order to really have a sense of being able to predict. What I can say is that it's just like crazy how much we don't notice the AI that is everywhere in our lives. I mean, we just get, once it's, I think there's some quote, I forget who says, it might be by the guy who coined the term actually, something McCarthy, but I think, but basically he said that, you know, it's it's AI and we call it AI until it exists, until it works. And then we don't yeah. call it AI anymore, right? Like GPS routing your traffic or yeah. something like that or something like we, that. We all live with hundreds of AI assistants that, you know, we all have a big team of assistants and they are all over the place doing so many different things for us all the time. I mean, you just, just, I mean, you, you're going to go and you're going to open your phone and open basically any app and you're dealing with a lot of AI. You're going to be, it, it just, you just get in your Uber, you, you go search on Google, you go search on Amazon for something, you go yeah. open Instagram, like for better or worse, you know, AI is. Even in the background, like how your food gets to your grocery store or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So I'm excited. No, forget, like, okay, the bigger topic is obviously artificial general intelligence, yeah. right? You know, when you have AI that's smart across the board, then you can get to super intelligence and like completely different world we live in, like utterly different world. Forget that for a second, because I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen. It, what I, I will say that I haven't heard, I, I kept kind of, it's such an outlandish concept that I keep waiting for, for people to say, what well, we, you know, we used to be naive and think it was coming soon. And now it's not, it's definitely not. I haven't heard that. It still seems like it's like kind of coming kind of soon, but just artificial narrow intelligence alone, you know, just these capabilities where AI yeah. is really great. They just at like thing. slowly get a little better at and slowly make our life better. Yeah. And, and yeah. we can be living in a magical world just on AI. I'm picturing a more advanced version of what we have now where you've got, first of all, you know, I'm wearing an Apple watch right now. Right. And, you know, other people wear a whoop or um, an aura ring or a Fitbit. I think that this is an infancy. And I think that what you're going to have is the hardware getting really good. It's going to probably end up either in your bloodstream or, or it'll be able to see your, what's in your body through your skin better than it can yep. now or whatever it is. It's going to really know what's going on in your body at all times. And then the software is going to get really good. And this is the AI component where it's going to be able to take all that data that it's collecting and actually have really intelligent feedback for you. It's going to, and, and then you can connect that to a food app. So you're going to have um, some kind of automated kitchen where you have a drone that is basically cooking food based on what your AI has told it your body needs for yeah, this yeah. afternoon. Yeah. And your goal, you've told it your goals and it knows what your body is going on in your body. And it's going to cook the food and fly it to you on a drone and drop it in a, in a, <laughs> in a slot in the side of your apartment. You're going to you know, hear a little ding, you open it up and there's your meal that is craft tailored to how your body was 12 minutes ago. Like there's just so many things like that that I am excited about because I think all it's doing is removing a bunch of low end thinking from us. You know, it allows us to focus on what matters more, a really high end stuff. Now, you, there's this idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is the idea where humans basically overestimate their own intelligence. Could you imagine something similar where AI starts to overestimate its intelligence? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure artificial general intelligence, when it gets there, I'm sure it will do a lot of that. I mean, it's going to be really crude at first. It's going to be rough around the edges and it's probably not going to be that self-aware and it's probably going to, but I don't know if ANI can necessarily really do that because it's just, it's just not even, it's just kind of a program in the end. I could see it. If anything though, I think it's more likely that people are going to be underestimating AI for a while. Yep. And when you think of these, like, how do we create more people to be more ambitious in the world? It seems like a lot of ambitious people are ambitious about making money but that doesn't necessarily make society better. They're a random hedge fund manager or something like that. And then there are people like an Elon Musk or something like that that are really 
building projects to like step function our society forward? How do we get more of these smart people, ambitious people to focus on something that we think like maybe long-term could be better for society? Well, I think the best way is someone like Elon. Think how many young minds have changed their course from wherever they were going to do to working in engineering or working at SpaceX or Tesla or Neuralink, but also working in those industries or just working on stuff like that, seeing someone else do it, seeing it's possible to do huge moonshots and going for it. So I I know Will McCaskill just came out with his big book on, you know, EA, right? On long-termism. And a big influential book on something like that can change a lot of young minds about what's possible and what to do. You know, so I think obviously people who are doing these things very publicly is a great way, but to create more of them beyond that, in some ways, like if like money is less valuable, like when we talked about in the beginning of this episode, then probably like being the hedge fund manager is less appealing because you still want to get credit in society. That if that's more valuable, then you might want to move to these things that you're you're building rocket ships going to Mars or curing yeah. you know, diseases or whatever else might be. If money is really valuable, I think it's two things. One it's that resources are still scarce enough. Like someone was talking to me the other day, and we we're talking about how. Someone in like the 20th percentile of wealth in the US, meaning they're like in the bottom fifth of wealth, most of them have an iPhone, right? And they have certainly have a smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. Smartphone is what I mean. And they have a place to live that has heating and running running water. And they can send their kid to a pretty decent education. And they probably have a car even, right? Um, And so we're talking about like that's just not that different than the really rich people. Of course, it's very different. But if you look back 200 or even 100 years ago to how the difference between the 20th percentile and the 80th, it's like they're living a magical life versus like a life of abject poverty. It's less and less different than it used to be, which is awesome, right? I mean, it's like rather than, I mean, obviously we're we're really programmed to be upset about income inequality. And of course it does usually signify a lot of bad things about the society or like it forebodes bad things. But the fact is it would be nice is that it just doesn't matter where it's like, the poorest people are doing pretty well and they have opportunity and they're not, you know, and they have, the, they have their needs met and they're comfortable and they have opportunity. So that's one way to make money matter less. Yeah. But the other way is what we really are in the, in the end is we're social creatures whose brain thinks we're in a small tribe still. We want to be cool in the tribe. We want to have high status. That That yep. is... We all crave status. Yeah. If, I already think status is less about money than it used to be, which is good. Like, I don't know, at least among the people I know, it's not like if someone's like rich, they have like more clout. I don't know if that really holds like it used to. And so I think what we want is for it to be cool to be someone who goes into the kind of stuff you're talking about. We want it to be kind of like lame to just go for money, maybe. I mean, or even not. I mean, honestly, like I I think people should be able to do what they want without, you know, judgment. I think that would be the ultimate thing. But if in a future society, it's like the coolest thing you can do is like go and build. Yeah and make new things. And in a way, you know, because right now, I think a lot of young idealism is being forced into kind of really nasty political stuff. And it's destructive. It's not constructive. And so, yeah, I think it should be, it would be ideally, it would be very cool to be constructive in the future. Let's talk about this nasty political stuff. You wrote this like great series called The Story of Us, which was like a deep dive into political polarization. And you laid up this concept of like high rung and low rung politics. Like, let's dive in a bit there. Like, give us some examples of like this low rung and high rung. So this was me kind of looking at how constrained our conversations were partially because of our terminology. Like we have left 
right and center. And then we have like the far left and the far right. And we have center right and center left and like centrist and whatever. Those are all horizontal words. That's a one dimensional spectrum. And yep. we're just referring to places along it. And people are like, we need more centrists. We need more moderates. But I'm like, is what we actually need more people that have policy positions that are kind of in the middle? I don't think that's what they're talking about. And so I made it a square instead of a, a line, right? So we have a, a second dimension, a vertical yeah, axis an, that I- A y-axis. Yeah, a yeah, y-axis that I, I call like a ladder, right? And, and and so we have the high rungs and the low rungs. Um, and so you can, you want to, you know, that it's good to be high up on that. And yeah. high up on that, and, and this is important because what does high up mean? How does the axis define it? I, I think of it as kind of the, the top, you're thinking with what I would call your higher mind, you know, which is you're, you're kind of in your right mind. You're being sane in that you care about truth because what sane person wouldn't. Yeah. And you're not dehumanizing people because what same person would, would do that? Why would you dehumanize a human or a group of humans? Um, it's not sane behavior to be on the low rungs, which is when yeah. I think- you're The low rung is, tr- is tribe, very, very tribal, right? Because I think it's a different part of your brain is truly doing the thinking. It's a part of your brain that's much more primitive that identifies with ideas and le- has le- learned and is programmed to be religious about a set of beliefs, whether it's those are us religious. versus them type yeah, of thing. whether those are religious or political. And then what comes from that is now I am these ideas. These ideas are me and other people who believe them are my people. And the people who don't are the bad people, right? Yeah. We all do this. This is very human, but I don't think we have to do this. I think it's one part of our brain that does this. And when we're doing this, what's going to happen? If the ideas are me, I'm going to protect them like I protect my body. If the ideas are us, right, that's going to be my criteria for are we friends or not? You know, because if you're not, if you don't have the right ideas, we can't be friends. We can't date. We can't whatever. And very quickly, you're not sane. You're being like mad. And so it's not that being high rung is some, you know, high genius thing. It's just the absence of this craziness that our brain is programmed to do. And our brain is programmed to do a lot of things. Like here's a totally different example is like if when I was single, I would go and, you know, and, you know, you're in a bar somewhere at a party and you see someone, you, you know, a, a girl you're interested in. And, and it's like all this fear to go and just like introduce yourself. It's like, yeah. oh, it's like, so what is, this is someone I'm never going to see again. It's a stranger. <laughs> it's like a figment of my imagination as far as that should be. She go up and just say something. And if it doesn't go well, great. Like hilarious. It's a video game, right? Okay. Yeah. But there's a big part of your brain, the same part that is tribal, this very ancient program that's running in our heads that still thinks we live in a small tribe and there's a small handful of people you might mate with. And if one of them rejects you, they're all going to talk about it. They're all going to laugh at you and you're out. You're you're now outgrouped by them. You're screwed. You're never going to mate, right? So we have so much fear of like romantic rejection because of that. There's so many examples like this where, where basically you've plucked us out of our natural habitat you put us into a different one and we're misfiring to dive into this romance yeah. thing like in some ways romance like who you marry has always been tribal like in fact like even by the definition like you used to marry people from like the neighboring tribe to bring the tribes together in some sort of way and not that long ago people would only marry let's say within their religion within their culture within their race and nowadays like the core tribal is like the red blue thing like the amount of cross red blue marriages has been going down dramatically i think now it's under 10 percent of marriages the dating apps you can sort people based on whether they're red or blue so you don't even have to see the reds or you don't have to see the blues if you don't want to so you only totally. see the There's people in your tribe says, 
like it was like i think I, I i tweeted it at one point it was like 50 years ago or maybe it was even like 30 years ago it was like um only four percent of people said that they didn't want their kid to marry someone who's the opposite political beliefs of them yeah or that they didn't want to marry someone maybe yeah that they wouldn't marry and today that number is up to like 60 percent of people i mean it's crazy so what's happening there is that, that like we've all gotten more into politics it's no politics has become the new religion ask people back then if you marry someone who's a different religion or ask people a hundred years ago, if you marry someone who's a different race, right? Yep. Now those things have become less and less tribal, at least in, in the, a lot of communities that I'm in. I'm sure there's a lot of places where people are very serious about religion still. And politics has kind of, it's not a coincidence. It's like the same exact portion, you know, the same exact contingents of the country that have become less into Christianity have become a lot more into politics and a lot more into, and, and, and it is replacing, you know, one kind of, craziness in a lot of cases with another one kind of religion with another so this is this is how i define high and low rung right low rung you're you basically have this crazy human program that is taken over hijacked your brain your political brain and on the high rungs it's not there it's or at least it's there but you're in control of it you you can see it and you're not letting it drive things so you're free to be kind of a normal human about politics and talk about it and change your mind and argue about it and without getting worked up and be friends with people that disagree. And, and also maybe to say, I don't know about a ton of political issues that you just don't know that much about that, you know, you wouldn't be comfortable doing a public debate about. And so therefore in private, you say, yeah, I'm not sure what I think about that. Yeah. Or going against your quote unquote tribe on certain things and stuff. Yeah. So when you're low rung, the problem is, first of all, it's not usually very nuanced. There's a checklist of beliefs you're supposed to have, a checklist of stances, and y- your brain will not let you challenge those. And you will not let other people, at worst, you won't even talk to other people. But even, sometimes you'll argue with them, but you'll have, there's no way they can change your mind because you're stuck in it. Yeah. And when you're stuck, those ideas are basically your boss. You work for them. You will now, all your confirmation bias and all this effort you're going to put in to continue to make sure you continue believing these stances are the right stances. And when you're on the high rungs, you are your ideas boss. You're the boss in your own head, right? That's obviously better. And so the reason I like this square is because people try to get it. It's not this is a new concept, but they say we should need more people who are moderate, right? They need people who are centrist. What they're trying to say is that we need more people who are high rung and the truth is the high rung goes all the way across the horizontal axis. So you have yep. far right and far left people who are high rung thinkers, right? There are some great nuanced, open-minded people whose views happen to be, they, they've come to a very radical set of beliefs. There's nothing wrong with that. And they've, or they've come to a, a very conservative set of beliefs. There is nothing wrong with that. Those people, we want them in the discussion, right? Even though I think maybe more often on the high rungs, you'd have a mix or you'd be a little bit more moderate. I think there's plenty of people that can be on the far ends. And likewise, being centrist alone does not make you a good political thinker. Right. You might be very tribally centrist where that's right. kind of, yes. And you can go for it. It's and like the tribal atheist or something like that or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like the a- atheism um, can be just as, just as much of a religion. So I agree with you. High rung seems much, much better than low rung. And it does seem like low rung is on the ascendancy. So how do we nudge society to become more high rung? Well, I think these labels help, whether it's these or something else. Okay. That you yeah. So with. having some sort of label, hey, uh, you're being a little bit low rung there. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, well, and just seeing it yourself and being like, okay, I'm being like. I guess if there's a tribe, a high rung tribe, I belong to the high rung tribe, then maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and I don't think that all tribes necessarily are bad. Like, by definition, a high rung tribe would be much more of like a community of people who disagree because yeah. high rung, again, is not about left, right or center. It's about up. So 
what would a high rank tribe be like? It's a group of people who, who are down to disagree. They're not attached to their views. They're not dehumanizing anyone, including the low rung people, because you're not dehumanizing on the high rung. So you just, yeah. you see low rung people the way you might look at someone who's an alcoholic. You're like, yeah, they're, 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 they're stuck in a really bad thing. Yeah. And also you, you would also know that you could be low rung. So you'd say, yeah, yeah, you know, we all do this. And it's not that they're low rung and I'm high rung. It's that I'm right now, hopefully being better at being high rung more often than I used to be. I mean, that's, that's the yeah. kind of way right, you you're never going to be a hundred percent. We all, we're, we all move into those things. Yeah. It's inherently humble on the high rungs because you know, you're human with this programming in you, right? So you're, you're, you're just trying to be better than you used to be. So that's, I'll be a part of that tribe all day, right? Cause it's not actually tribal in the old school sense. It's more of a, a set of values, a way of thinking. And I think it's also, of course, beyond the fact that it's just better for you and better, you know, more pleasant way to be. It's also way better for the world. <laughs> High rung thinkers come to solutions. They actually crack hard problems. They improve things. They can change minds. They're good at changing minds. All low rung tribes can do is who has the biggest cudgel? Can I out overpower you with indoctrination, with intimidation, with sneaky kind of cheating tactics? And can we overpower you and win the vote and then try to push through as much as we can? That's a really bad way to run a country. And that's what's a lot of what's happening. And, and then what else do the low rungs do? They're very hostile to high rungs. The low rungs, it's not just that they're hostile to each other. The other low rungs. They're tribe. much more hostile high rungs. Yeah. Yes, they yeah. hate yeah. high rungs. So what they will do. They've gone from the religion, essentially, right? Exactly. It's an apostate. It's an infidel, right? And yeah. so when you're in a low rung mindset, you don't, it's not like you see the high rungs and you're like, they're up there and I'm down here. You don't, no one thinks that way, right? Everyone thinks they're high rung if you talk about yeah. it. It's that they they're see a traitor. The, if you, when you're low rung, you don't see the world as this thing. You see it as there's good and there's bad. All, if all you see is that and someone disagrees with you, a high runger is going to disagree with any low rung, right? Yeah. Any high runger is going to have a lot of disagreement with any low runger just because they're not going to be on a, a simple checklist, right? immediately you'll get framed as you're one of them. You, you must be one of the other bad guys. Yeah. And so you get framed that way. And there's a lot of pressure right now on high rungers to shut up and to not be high rung in public and to not act uncertain about this or challenge your own tribe beliefs. And the most pressure that we all feel if you're trying to be high rung is from people, low rungers who are kind of closer to you than, yeah. uh, you know, for me, I'm not getting any shit from the lower left. And there's a big lower left out there. I just don't know them very much. I know a few and I do get shit from them. But if I'm going to you know, go out there and, and try to act high wrong, I'm going to get a lot of pressure from the lower left because that's much more my world. Yeah. And so that's the thing. It takes some courage. It doesn't take courage to trash the other lower tribe. If you're yeah. around a bunch of blue people, it doesn't take courage to trash the MAGA tribe. That is the least courageous thing you can do. Yeah. It gives you some credibility within your tribe. Yeah. But yeah, it yeah. doesn't and take any courage. Is, right. It's getting brownie points from right. your, your own tribe. It's like if you're a Yankee fan trashing the Red Sox. Exactly. Like it's not gonna, what yeah, actually yeah. takes courage is standing up to whatever tribalism is in your neck of the woods, whether it's political or anything else. Standing up to that and challenging that, that is courage because it's, again, it's social courage. And that's that we are very social creatures. For us, standing up to being potentially socially ostracized is that's almost as scary as being physically hurt for us. One of the counterintuitive things is that it seems to be that the higher intelligence people are even more likely to be low rung than high rung. A, do you agree with that? And what, why is that the case? It is true. So I would say it's a few things. It's it's usually- just like easier at like finding the arguments to support their position and stuff? Yeah. Or? Okay. So 
all of us have this program running in our head, this primitive program, all of us, right? Every human on earth, right? So, you know, and, and really smart people, it's like, you know, that program acts like a lawyer, right? It's trying to make a case to continue to believe to a lawyer is not going to say, oh, no, actually my client is guilty, I guess, because they just made a good argument. No, the, the lawyer has to say my client is innocent, right? Yeah. And that's my job, right? So there's a lawyer in your head that has to have, they say, these stances are correct and morally good. And my worldview is true and I'm accurate. And other than being a scientist, right, searching for truth, it's going to be trying to prove the case that, you know, it's trying to, it's trying to confirm. And smart people have a very, very smart lawyer in their head, right? They have a very good lawyer in their head. So that's one thing. Another thing is that political tribalism is kind of an, an elitist hobby. If you look at the statistics, the more likely that on both the far right and the far left, there's this great report called the Hidden Tribes of America. The Pew, the Pew report, or no, it's not Pew, but Pew comes to the same. There's many Pew Gallup. They all find the same thing, which is that it's not just two tribes, right? It's it's it's, you have the far, what they call the progressive activists, which would make the farthest left, and then on the farthest right, you have like you know the devoted conservatives. These are like hardcore MAGA people, right? Both of those groups, they are the they're small. They make up 14 percent of the country combined. They are the two richest groups. They're the two whitest groups. The, the education is more of the left. The, the highest, by far, the progressive activists are the highest, Educated. most likely to have a yeah. college degree or grad degree. So these are these are the elite fighting with each other, right? These are the, the wealthy white elite of the country. And so I mean, partially because you got to have some spare time to get immersed in political <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Most people, they're not sitting there watching MSNBC. They're just busier, right? They have stuff going on and they don't have the time to do this. Also, college itself, universities, which is where a lot of educated people obviously have spent a lot of time, they are highly political environments. They've become really political. And so they're kind of, in a lot of cases, training facilities for political tribalism. They've become that way. It's unfortunate. It's the opposite of what they should be. But both the intelligence thing makes sense to me and also the fact that higher educated people are more politically tribal makes a lot of sense to me. Now, going back to like our life, you have this popular post about how to make the right choice in a life partner. And you you basically have a rule which basically says, like, whatever you do, don't marry the wrong person, which essentially, like, don't rush into that decision. But, you know, on the flip side, that could just lead to people massively delaying marriage or just never getting married and overvaluing optionality. Like, how do you think about the trade-off? Yeah, it is a trade-off. I think that what I said, when I said, whatever you do, don't marry the wrong person, that's not quite nuanced enough. There's a spectrum of, let's say, the spectrum on one end, it's it's someone who is you know, and I know people like this who are, you know, they're 26 and they're saying, I better find my life partner by like 28 or it's gonna be like a disaster. And they will basically, whoever the next person they're in a relationship with, there's a lot of people for whom when they're 25, whether they realize it or not, whoever they're in their next relationship with is they're just going to immediately marry. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. That's on one side of the spectrum. And I think that they're in too much of a rush. I think they need that advice. Don't marry the wrong person. Then there's the person on the other side. And I know a lot of these people too. And I was probably closer to being this person in a different life path I could have been, who just is, a, you can't make the decision because that no one's no, no one's going to be, there's no perfect person in the world. No and one's going to find right? flaws. And, and, yeah. Yes. And that's not wise, actually. Because part of, partially, to me, what that says is that you aren't grown up enough to realize how flawed you are. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you think that I'm worthy, I can't have someone who's flawed. You don't know yourself very well, right? Because they know it's going to want you if they think yes, the same way, uh, right? Yeah. Growing up enough to realize that you are, the way I think about it is each of us has 15 sides to us, just set, right? So there's like picture 15 of me standing here. And there's on the first date, you're going to see the best two or three of them, right? You're going to see the <laughs> best ones. 
And I'm going to see the best ones of you, right? So it's like those two or three yeah. people are dating. And by the way, not always. Like I think sometimes you, you can no, see sure. the other sides. But generally, quickly. early yeah. on, yeah. it's yeah. The, the best three of the 15 of each person are dating each other. So it's this little group of six hanging out and they everyone is awesome, right? And they're in the honeymoon phase. And there's all the chemicals that also make you see the best things of people. Eventually, you're going to be dating all 15 of these people, right? Yeah. And when you see the worst sides or even the medium sides of this person, it might mean that that's not right for you because those particular flaws are a bad match for you and or something that just really turns you off. Okay, that's fine, right? But everyone is going to have some medium and bad sides to them. And the consciousness of the fact that you have 15 people and your worst ones suck. <laughs> your worst sides suck and no one would be happy to be with those people, right? Is a critical piece of information to help you realize that you're getting a package of 15 people either way. And then all these yeah. other people who you don't know very well, who seem you're comparing your person to. You're right, right. On. You're like, oh, you're only seeing their, the three. You never exactly. see the other the other. So the I would say the wise thing is, again, if, if we live to 150, you're like your first question. If you live to 150 or 1,000, ideally, then I think it's a whole different discussion. I mean, uh, but the way it is, also, of course, I think it's very obvious should be an obvious point that not everyone has to get married. Yeah. Not everyone has to even be monogamous or even in a relationship, right? Like there's a lot of ways to live life. And again, the same primitive program that becomes politically tribal wants to do what is normal and what everyone else is doing. So we think we have to do the thing that is society says is normal, conventionalism. And I, I think that people should reason from first principles and get to know themselves. But amongst people who want to get married, I would say that given our lifespan, that the best way to be is in the middle of the spectrum, maybe maybe two thirds of the way towards the picky side, but not too far. And I, I still think it's better to marry someone who's really good for you at 44 than to marry someone who's significantly worse for you at 34 or yeah. 28. But again, making a decision about someone, I don't think should require them to be perfect. It should require it to be something that, you know, you, everyone has their own criteria, but it should be pretty damn good. And the whole package itself, even though there's parts of it that are not right for you and that, you you know, you would be better with someone else, that the package as a whole really works for you and it just feels good and it feels right. And then at that point, I think you switch on a whole different part of your brain, you get engaged. And at that point, your new job is to make the best of it, right? And yeah. it doesn't, you know, it's like, think about how many arranged marriages in history have been happy marriages. A lot of them actually, because yeah. I think at that point, then you get out of your picky side. And now you think, I think we are all people who could probably end up in a good marriage with a ton of different people if we were arranged to them. So now have that in your mind and say, well, now this person I have picked. So it should be, there's no excuse for it not to be really good. I just have to work on it. And I have to, yeah. I have to it has now let's work really hard to make this great and it doesn't have to be perfect. So that, that's kind of my more nuanced take, I would say. Yeah. All right. I really like that. That's really interesting. I think you have maybe the most viewed TED Talk of all time, which is about procrastination. For listeners that are procrastinators, which I imagine is a lot of us, what advice would you give them? Yeah. I have done a lot of thinking and, <laughs> okay. and, and work on this topic. I would give two pieces of advice of, of many that I could talk about. One is I think of it as you have a rational decision maker in your brain, you have the instant gratification monkey, right? These are the two characters. You could say it's the adult and the kid, whatever you want to say. Or like the high rung and lower in politics, it's it's the very rational part of your brain. And then it's the primitive program part. The primitive yeah. program part, just like it wants to be politically tribal and it's scared to approach a stranger in a bar, it also doesn't understand the concept of long-term planning, working hard for something where, whose reward is far away. It understands working on something, you know, for me, I procrastinate a lot less if I'm writing a short post that's going to go up in four hours. Yeah. Because the reward, I can smell it. 
So that part of my brain is like suddenly on board because it's like, yes, right. or a tweet be, or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. a tweet. I never procrastinate on a tweet, right? Right, right. Because you the get the rewards right like immediately. Yeah. But a book is a fucking nightmare because yeah. this part of my brain, it doesn't, it literally cannot see that far. So it does not understand that it's working on a high stakes thing that really matters, that people are going to read. It just thinks that this is bullshit, what we have to do today, right? And it's not satisfying for it to work on that. So is a huge battle with procrastination that surfaces, right? And even more so, at least there, it's a finite task. And I know people will read it eventually. The biggest procrastination thing is stuff that has no deadline at all. And it's, you know, I want to get in better shape. I want to record songs and be a singer songwriter or something. I want to I quit my job and go and try this thing. I want to start this company. So many of us just never do it. We never yeah. do it. Or I want to get out of a relationship that's not working. And that's, there's so much resistance to that, right? We will procrastinate forever. I want to move cities, but you know, not this year. It's just too yeah. much, right? So we all have this problem. Now, what I would say is the smaller kind of advice is on a day-to-day basis, I find that I've get into the best zone when I can make a bargain between the two characters, when the rational decision maker can act like an adult to this child and can actually make a deal and say, we're going to work till five today and then stop. And then what I find is that, uh, you know, if the times when the monkey will let me work and I actually get that work done till five, I suddenly am in this perfectionist zone. I'm like, oh, this is, I'm on, on a roll. Let's keep it going. Mm-hmm. And I don't keep my side of the bargain. And it's very important to realize that you have to be a good parent, actually. It's like a lot of the fault is not the monkey. It's the rational decision maker not keeping his bargain to the monkey. So it's like, no, no, we made this bargain. Now you have to go, like, you have go to go watch have Netflix or something. You have or to whatever. have fun. You have to train the monkey that this work will actually yield reward later. Because you're, uh, you're giving it. the monkey okay. the very wrong lesson and it's going to rebel the next day. And it really will. It's like, it's like, a, it's an actual like parent child right. relationship. Right. It's like when I tell my kids they get candy or something. And if I don't give them the candy, it's like, I'm not going to be able to get you. Burnt, the they're time. getting burnt for trusting yeah. you. Right. It's inherently bad. It would be bad parenting. You know, don't do stuff you're saying you're going to do. So I think that it's better to think of your, for me, it's very important to think of a yin yang with work and play. And it's not just the work. The work is, you know, you want, I want the work to be black and the, the, the play to be white, you know, like, we, like really black and white, not gray area. And the more fun and pure the play can be, and that means you're not anxious. You're not thinking I should be working because that ruins play time. Yeah. Genuine guilt-free leisure time is great. It charges you and you can then have work time and then play time. This is for someone who works at home, especially or on your own hours. What I've done a lot of is the opposite of this, which is I'm always in a gray zone where I should be working and I'm actually working like 16 hours a day, but I'm not actually getting that much done because I'm always in a I should be working zone, kind of working, kind of resisting. And then when you're playing and when you're supposed to be working, I call that dark playground. It's not a good yeah. place to be and it's not healthy. It's a toxic place to be as opposed to the post-work happy playground, which recharges your willpower for work the next day. So that's the first thing is be yin-yangy, not gray. And the second advice I would say is, that self-fulfilling prophecies are real. And so many of us are stuck in procrastination or whatever, because that's our storyline. That's what we deep down believe that we will do the next day. We think I will never write my singer songwriter album because I've never done it in the past. And I'm just, you, you, we have a deep hopelessness and that itself really gives, it's deeply disempowering to be hopeless. It, it actually means that this battle between the adult and kid in your head, if you think the kid's going to win, you believe the kid's going to win. The kid will have all this power from your belief. Your confidence in it is going to empower it to win. And your lack of confidence in the grown up to do the right thing is going to crush the ability for that grown up to have any power in your head. So you have to change your storyline. And the only way you actually change your storyline, you can't just think I'm going to change next week because you don't really believe it because you haven't is by actually having David beat Goliath a few times. And that's, you have to figure out how. 
but to prove to yourself, hey, you know what? Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I actually did the right thing. Maybe on Thursday and Friday, I will. And then over the weekend, you think maybe next week, and you have to actually- There's a habit that happens or something. Yeah, then it can become a habit. But then even more importantly, you have a new storyline, which is, no, I actually, I grew up, I changed, and I do this now. And I'm someone who works out now. I just am now. And your storyline now is someone who, who works out your identity. Is someone, but you have to get over the hump first and maybe get, get a trainer or something that will force you to. So you have to find a way to change that storyline in the first place. There is a still limit of the number of things that one can do, right? So there's just no way if you have hundreds of big things that you want to accomplish, like you're just never going to be able to do them. And you you will feel somewhat bad about yourself for not doing something that's like on your list. Uh, one of the things I did is I always wanted to write a novel, but it's never in my top 20 things in any given year. But I always like create little notes for it and I'd write them down. And then one year, a few years ago, I just decided like, I am never going to write a novel. I just said like, even though I kind of want to do it, I just wrote, so like, I said to myself, like, this will never, ever happen. It's never going to be my top 10 things. So I'm never going to do it. I just kind of like crossed it off my list. And it was this freeing thing. Mm. I no longer had this thing on my list. And, you know, again, I could change my mind in 10 years, but it became a very, very freeing thing to just say, like, I'm never going to do it. Yeah, that, that, that's a very healthy thing to do, I think, to intentionally give up on certain goals. And so you can focus. Or e- even if, you know, if someone doesn't want to say never, to say, like, you know, CGP Gray is one of my favorite YouTube creators. And one yeah. of the things he says is rather than a New Year's resolution, make a theme of the year. Something like that where you say for next year or for the next five years, I'm focusing on these three goals or whatever it is. And I'm intentionally not even thinking about these other six. And in five years, I'm going to come back to the drawing board and then we'll see where we are. Something where you can compartmentalize and be in, in the present moment not have other things in your head and just have the things you want to do and then be very serious about those things. I think that's a great idea or a theme of the year, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that perfectionism is a very immature impulse. A lot of procrastinators have a big perfectionism problem. I am one of them. Yeah. And it's a perfectionism that you can't let go of everything. You have to, and and you realize that like in the end, you're, you know, again, we have this limited time. You're going to actually probably accomplish a few things really well and that's it. And we have this childhood kind of this, this delusion that, you know, oh, I'm going to get to all these things eventually. And you're not. And so the, the the best thing you can possibly hope for is to get to a few things really, really well, really well, right? And so once you internalize that, you can start to pick those things and realize that by trying to get to everything, what you're most likely to end up doing is feeling like you didn't really do anything that well or you only did one thing, you know? So yeah, I think it's important. All right, last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think there's a... I don't know if it's advice exactly, but there's a, there's some kind of conventional wisdom that I think young people grow up with, which makes them think that the outside world, the free market is you have to get in there and somehow compete. And it's really hard, right? Oh, you want to be a musician. You want to be an actor. You want to be an entrepreneur. You want to be really, really rich. You want to be whatever the thing is. It's a one in a hundred shot. You know, you, you're going to have to go out there and, you know, you're going to have to get lucky and, and compete. And you have to just be the way I think about it is that actually the battle, no matter which profession you're in and what you want to do, the battle is in your own head. This is where you have to work on. This is where you have to win. Because if I believe that if someone who early on can get a hold of stuff like perfectionism and procrastination and can become someone who gets good at continual self-improvement and persists for a long time, they, they get rid of that part of them that wants to give up and throw their hands up and they're not good at something at first and they will persist for, I think that person will have magical success almost all the time. Yeah. Especially again, because they're also going to be not 
stubborn about the exact goal. They're going to be able to, to pivot and to be nimble and to, to, to figure out what they're good at as they go. I think that that's all internal stuff. And that person, I would bet on them any day over someone who has all these goals and they're incredibly talented and smart, but they don't have any of the internal stuff worked out. They're really kind of immature in their head. They're a perfectionist. They give up easily. They're not good at persisting. They procrastinate. They're stubborn and they're living in kind of fear. That person doesn't matter. You can be Michael Jordan. You're just not going to do that well in the world, right? So I think the basic conventional wisdom should be switched to being like, work on yourself, then the world is easy. Yeah, I love that. Okay, well, I follow you at Wait But Why on Twitter. I also am a subscriber on your blog, Wait But Why. I love it. And I encourage all of our listeners to do that. Tim Urban, thank you so much for being on World of Das. Yes, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.